afternoon. It is Friday, August 5th, and this is Travelogue, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I am not Brad Rickman, your usual host. I'm Laura Redman. I'm the Deputy Digital Director, and I have a nice big team here today to talk all things Rio. The Olympics start today, and we have a uh, new contributing editor, Jordy, who is in Rio right now, Skyping in, along with Paul Brady and Aaron Florio from the print team, our excellent editors, and John Pack, who is a photographer who has visited many Olympic sites and can talk a lot about what happens to these venues after uh, everyone else has left. And we have Sebastian Madoc today over on, what are you doing? You're making sure this works. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I just want to like, let's jump right in. I want to hear how Rio is right now. Jordi, what do you see? What do you hear? Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, you can really feel that there's an energy shift. I've never been to Rio before, but just like walking into that entrance hall in Rio, it's just filled with people. Everyone's coming out and Snapchatting and filming and there's traffic jams and it it just, you can really feel that there's certainly something special that's happening here. That's awesome. Where are you based right now? Right now I'm in Barra de Tijuca. I apologize if I said that horrendously, but I'm staying at the Grand Hyatt, which is actually uh, one of the newest hotels here, and it's really, really beautiful. It's right on the beach, and uh, so far, it, it's been a great experience. And you're going to the Olympic ceremonies, right, later tonight? Yeah, I'm going to the opening ceremony, which I'm really, really excited about. We have to leave like three hours early <laughs> to, to get all the way there and make sure that we get in on time. And then I have a bunch of other sports lined up. We are going to see gymnastics, which I'm excited about swimming so I'll be able to see Michael Phelps again and they also just added to my itinerary I get to see the China USA basketball game oh I'm kind of jealous I'm very jealous (laughs) although are you covered are you just wrapped in a mosquito net right now are you worried about it at all how's the Zika about uh checking my beekeeper suit um (laughs) (laughs) I'm I brought all long sleeves and long pants for the most part and I definitely have bug spray but it was funny when I walked into my hotel room there's literally a bug spray bottle sitting like next to my bedside it's like telephone bug spray and is it like a thousand percent deep yeah, it's just, yeah, it's a straight deep. Yeah. straight, straight deep. I actually might get more sick from the bug spray than if I got <laughs> There was a report I read recently that like one in 500,000 people will get Zika down here. Which, I mean, that's nothing, right? And Yeah, that's pretty good. It actually made me feel comforted. Good. And I think there is an actual bug spray sponsor for the Olympics, and there is a billboard that's meant to zap bugs. They've been trying all kinds of things before, like in the gear up to this. Mm-hmm. But was it, I mean, I've also heard, though, that a lot of people are staying home because of the fear of Zika. I mean, I think you wrote recently that it's the stay-at-home Olympics, that not as many people were booking flights there this year as they were back during uh, World Cup, Brazil's World Cup two years ago. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Compared to the last Olympics and the World Cup, and especially Americans, even though that same study said that Americans were tweeting and getting on social media to support their team more than any other country, they're also the same country that's not actually getting on the ground here. So it seems like Americans might be a little bit more nervous about Zika than other countries. But the fact that they're on social media, they're on their phones, they're on the computers means that they're definitely watching. And I feel like that will be really interesting to see if advertisers and marketers sort of change their approach to how they're going to market to this new audience because they're not here. They're going to be on their phones and it's going to be from their TVs and staying at home. 
I'm definitely watching. I do wish I was there, though. I haven't been to Rio. A few of us have that one. We actually have a massive um, story about Rio in our upcoming issue, our August issue. And Aaron took the lead on editing that. But it's so dense with great information. And there's so many great hotels, bars, restaurants. If we were to tell someone, you know, really great place to get a cocktail right now, like where would you send them? Oh, um, yeah, you know, it's interesting that you start with cocktails because kind of the whole premise of the package that we put, obviously specifically into our August issue to peg to the Olympics, the whole idea of it is that Rio as a city is kind of growing up a little bit. It's always going to be like the world's ultimate beach town, but they've sort of got this new infrastructure, new developments happening that are kind of giving it a little bit of a more mature perspective, if you will. And one of the things is cocktails, mm. uh, which is obviously a, a big reason why people travel and a big thing people associate with Rio because of the famous Caipirinha. There's been, actually not too far from where you are, Jordi and Barra, there's this great beach bar called Atlantico, which kind of like paved the way that was opened by a guy named Tato Giovanoni, who's an Argentine. And it's, you know, great sort of beach snacks and really great cocktails and unique sort of mixes and blends to get away from the old Caipirinha. And yeah, I think they're sort of seeing a, a new cocktail culture, if you will, in Rio at the moment, which I'm sure a lot of the revelers are enjoying <laughs> at the moment. That's fantastic. I think you recently said that one of your favorite places to get a cocktail was at the Copacabana. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So there's the old and there's the new. And that's one of the beautiful sort of dualities of Rio. Uh, the old, they've got such iconic places. Copacabana Palace, of course, is, you know, the first sort of luxury beachfront resort in all of South America. It's still pretty much the place to stay when you're in Rio. And uh, one of the great things to do while you're in town is if you're lucky enough to have a room there, go to the pool, grab, uh, you know, they have like a caipirinha carts essentially going around the poolside and sit out there and have a drink and it's like a great timeless Rio experience. And then what about I, Hotel Fasano? I'm interested in yep. that one. Okay, so let's talk about the hotels in Rio. You had mentioned the, the Grand Hyatt, which is a great new property and it's really conveniently located close to where the Olympics are, but true, you probably still have to allow three hours to get between the hotel and into your seat at the stadium for any events. But for so long, two hotels have kind of dominated Rio's hotel scene, Copacabana Palace, of course, for almost a century now, and the Fasano, which is great, Philippe Stark-designed-centric hotel. It's really cool. You know, it's great to go to the rooftop. I've been on the rooftop of that hotel, have a drink. They've got a rooftop pool. It's awesome. You've got this great view over the great beaches of Zona Sol, so Ipanema and Leblon and Copacabana. But one of the more interesting, uh, you know, developments or trends we're seeing is this neighborhood called Santa Teresa, which is inland. It's off the beach. It's up a hill. And you're getting these really awesome boutique properties opening up there. And they're kind of like a scene in and of themselves. Like they've mm -hmm. got these cool, you know, pools and terraces and people go up there and have a drink. I wasn't staying at the Villa Santa Teresa, but I did go there last time I was in Rio and had a drink with, you know, a friend of mine. And it's just you just get this glimpse into this life. And it's it's. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, but everything in Rio is kind of fun. If It's sort of synonymous with having fun. It's just the way they do things down there. Right. Well, what about, um, like, what's the neighborhood to go hang out in right now? Is it that neighborhood or is it beyond? I like Santa Teresa, but I think what people are seeing a big trend in is this neighborhood called the Jardim Botanico, which is at the base of the Tichueca Rainforest, which is the world's largest urban rainforest, which is really cool. So, you know, you can be in this neighborhood and you're gonna see toucans and parakeets and parrots flying all around you. In the neighborhood, you can hike, make as 
far away up the mountain as you can to get to the famous Christ the Redeemer statue. You probably won't make it all the way up there, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you can try. And there are great sort of vistas and things. Of the, I think it's called the Vista Chinese or something along those lines. The Chinese viewpoint uh, is, is, a good, is a good stopping point. I went there. But, you know, down the base of it, you've got these boutiques and bistros and bars, and it's just a really fun, young scene that's cropping up. I think it's been emerging over the past few years. And if you want to spend a day in, you know, a neighborhood and get a feel for life as the locals, which a lot of travelers do, that from what I understand and what I saw, that's that's the place to do it. Does it all feel safe? I know we talk a lot about concerns about getting on the bus. I mean, Jordy, you're there right now. How do you feel? I haven't been able to go out and explore a ton, but from just talking with people who have been here for a little while, they say they feel they feel very, very safe. Again, like I said, I haven't been out on the streets. They did recommend walking with another person. Don't go out into you know, the back alleys by yourself. But for the most part, I also felt really safe when I was driving down the highway, there was a ton of security, there's security everywhere. So I feel like I haven't been here before, but they've certainly upped the ante in terms of making you feel safe with the number of people on the ground. So is it kind of just, you know, a bad um, heritage for Rio? I mean, is it bad rap that it gets or? I don't know. I mean, you know, Paul and John, feel free to jump into with your own impressions. But I, I, I think, listen, there's certainly an element of truth to anything that has that that strong a reputation. I mean, that's not to say that you should avoid Rio, but just be smart about the way you would approach it, the way you would any city that you're not familiar with that you know kind of has a reputation for petty crime. Uh, you know, Barcelona is even the same way. Right. Just be cautious. Don't walk around late at night by yourself if you don't really know where you're going. Um, that's not to say that people should be frightened mm-hmm. about exploring in Rio. They should absolutely embrace exploring Rio. But just know where you're going and make sure you're in contact with somebody that kind of knows the area or that you feel strong enough in your knowledge about the area to sort of go out and explore. But generally, it's fine. Aaron, I thought one of your great tips in the uh, August issue was all about this idea of, of the local version of Uber which as an app for your phone, which should make it very easy to get around and very, you know, sort of safe and more secure than just trying to grab a taxi on the street or walk down some street that you don't really know where you're going. So it's called 99 Taxis? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's just for Rio or it's for all of Brazil? From what I understand, it's just for Rio. Okay. Um, I could, don't quote me on that. I could be wrong. But I know that that, uh, we had a great reporter on the ground there, Lauren Holmes, and she she sort of plugged into all these things. And that was one of her great tips. And it's always good to, you know, call a trusted company or use a trusted app when you're in a city you don't know. And this is just, yeah, a good tip for when you're on the ground you need to get around because, frankly, you know, you don't know how reliable the subway will be in getting you to where you need to get to. Even though I've been on the Rio subway and I stand by it, I think it's great. But uh, good to know the taxis to call out and not hail one on the street in Rio. Yeah, well, we were talking yesterday on the Facebook Live video about the idea of the new subway system that's there and you read a lot about it in the press that it's not open or it's, like, partially open just for VIPs and, and like, doesn't that sound kind of ultimately Brazilian, right? That there would be a subway that, that's open only for the VIP people for a few weeks. So you seem to say that the subway is the best way to beat I, rush hour traffic. I, mean, I think if, listen, it's not the most expensive subway system. If you need to get to certain areas of the city, the subway cannot get you there. It just is not that expensive. I think when you're considering Rio traffic and how swiftly you need to get from point A to point B, especially during rush hour, 
it's very efficient. It's very reliable. I would totally recommend people get it if it's convenient for them. But like I said, the biggest hindrance to the subway system is that it's not the most expansive network. Now, they were expanding it specifically with the Olympics in mind. They've had a few hiccups along the way. But if you are in a position to be able to use the subway, I say go for it. Now, you don't, you know, you don't always recommend the public transportation in foreign cities, but the subway was fine. Well, I mean, given that people are there for the Olympics, too, the Olympics are everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. the sprawl. John, maybe you can talk a little bit about this, but the effect that the Olympics have on a city and the kind of venues that they build just for it and the kind of economic boons or busts because of it. I mean, it takes over a country, not just a city. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could even see it with the World Cup they had there. They built stadiums all around the country and some of them aren't there's no real use for them afterwards. In your research, going to some of the cities that have hosted Olympics, like what does happen to some of these venues? Do they become graveyards, you know, the equivalent of an abandoned airport? There is a lot of that. There's a lot of ruined porn, <laughs> which, uh, which is, happens with all these mega events because it's, it's a two-week party, really, for mm-hmm. the city. Mm-hmm. And it depends on the city whether they've, you know, the reason they went into getting the Olympics, what they're trying to get out of it. So it really depends. So, so a city like Barcelona... They actually used it as an excuse to do 50 years of infrastructure that they've had planned mm. in a few years. And so for a city like that, you know, they opened the beach up to the citizens and they, you know, made the city safer. And now all the venues are, are in use and it's, you know, tourism is up, <laughs> you know, before the Olympics in 92, Barcelona wasn't on the map for uh, tourists. But now it's in the top five, I think. Oh, they told tourists to stay home. I mean, they get so many, they're actually like... Right. They, they were talking about putting limits on it, so... Right. You're right, it does... I and mean, Barcelona's, the same thing happened to Beijing, too. Right. Of. Yeah, and Beijing... <laughs> Beijing was sort of the same situation as Athens, where Beijing really just wanted to show the world mm-hmm. what they could do. And Beijing, you know, spent $14 billion. They built permanent baseball stadiums mm-hmm. that they then just bulldozed over. But they weren't responsible to the... You know, they didn't have to answer to their people as much as a city like Athens. Mm-hmm. So Athens did the sort of same thing, didn't really have a plan afterwards. Yeah. Beijing got out of it what they wanted, really. They they knew it was a two-week spotlight. They wanted it to look good during those two weeks, right. and it right. did. But what happened afterwards is different. It's funny. Um, I know this is probably totally unrelated to the studies that you've done, but I, when I was a little girl, I lived in South Korea. So mm-hmm. I actually went to the Seoul Olympics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was four years old, so everybody knows how old I am now. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> it was, you know, it was, it was great. <laughs> it was fun. Math is, math, yeah, I'm not doing math. Know, I'm not doing math. math but, pocket. you know, I remember going kind of because I was four and I have some memories. But for the five years after that, that I was still living in Seoul, it was like, for some reason, the Olympic Park became like a favorite of my parents to take me, my brother and sister to as like a weekend activity. So mm-hmm. we would go and we would just walk around the grounds and explore. We have so many photos in my family photo albums. And I mean, I guess that's kind of a best case scenario for a lot of cities. Like it becomes like a tourist attraction. Go and see the old Olympic Park that is not getting used anymore. And I think sometimes that works out. I mean, I've also just been in London for many years and there, you know, there's kind of a discussion about how to use everything out in East London that they had, you know, four years ago that they were using. Um, right. And yeah, they're sort of trying to market it as a tourist attraction, but sure. I think in London it gets buried under all of the other tourist attractions, whereas yeah. in a place that doesn't have as much to offer, there's probably some some potential in that. But I don't know if you saw any of that, like in, in your research. Right. Are uh, tourists interested in old Olympic parks? There are. I mean, people are, there are people that are obsessed with the Olympics, and there's that sort of tourist. There's the architecture buffs. 
It can be a really big draw. We just came back in June from Torino, Gary and I, my partner on the project, and you know, there's no evidence that the Olympics was there. Hmm. Um, and that was, they called that the first urban Olymp- winter Olympics. But if you go walk around the city, it's a beautiful city, but there's really no evidence. And that can be a good thing. In the case of Torino, I don't think it is, because I think, like Detroit, they lost fiat, and they were hoping that the Olympics would replace that economy with tourism, sure. which didn't really pan out, or conventions. And so the city is a little, you know, having some trouble with that. But you look at a place like L.A. in 84, they, they didn't do any building, really. Uh, no one won the Olympics in 84. Mm-hmm. And they said, we could do it. We just won't build much. And they built barely anything. And they had the Olympics. They, and then they, they made about $200 million, I think, on it. And if you go there now, again, you don't really see any evidence besides yeah. of the Olympic Stadium that was built pre-84. I feel like Vancouver is similar. I mean, I, I don't know how broad the infrastructure is, but what they have in Whistler is absolutely a tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. You, It's very nostalgic. It still has the rings, and they mm-hmm. you can go on a luge ride or mm-hmm. yeah. uh, bobsled. Not bobsled. That'd be crazy. Can you mm-hmm. imagine hopping into a bobsled? Well, <laughs> they shouldn't let citizens Actually, <laughs> no. In, in Lake Placid, they have the bobsled experience. Uh, really? Yeah. Where... Um, <laughs> You can go in winter or summer, and you you go with a, a pro, and okay. you pay. Good. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> but Not just like you and your children popping on in, yeah. putting on a helmet, and go. I was asked while best. I was there. <laughs> I was asked while I was there if I if I wanted to do that. I said no, not no. really, not really. I don't. Okay. But I think a lot of corp in the especially in the uh, summer. I think a lot of corporations do it as like a it's like the trust fall, you know. As oh like my a God, we should do that as a traveler activity. Do it. Do it. Do you think our boss trust falls are over? Yeah, I would do. I would give it a shot. I think. Would and you? Uh, my understanding, not that I've been there, but uh, is Salt Lake City has a similar sort of outdoors, you know, winter. It's it's weird, right? It's this dichotomy between the Winter Olympics and the Summer Olympics, right? And it seems to be the Summer Olympics, which are the bigger event and the more yeah. sort of expansive event, tend to be the, also the ones that are just complete boondoggles. Whereas the Winter Olympics are kind of like, oh, we, we can set it up, go out in the mountains, and then we tear yeah. it down, and it kind of goes away or, or remains just a yeah, very small. Yeah, with the one exception of Sochi, which, which oh, right, was of course. $50, of co- billion, $50 dollars, billion, and they spent the amount that of all winter games combined you know, in the past. Uh, and they, they put it in a place where it should be summer, summer right. resorts. Place. Right. But, yeah, but usually, 60 degrees during the winter. You know, <laughs> they're having trouble finding more, I think, Olympic venues, uh, Olympic sites mm-hmm. to host the Olympics in winter because... You know, if it's not a resort, yeah, it's, it becomes it becomes not worth the money. It's I think, too to much put of an it. investment when you don't have pre-existing infrastructure to support it. Probably, yeah. yeah. I don't think it should be. Yeah. You know, put in, in places. You know, that's what's happening in two thousand. What is it? Eighteen, I guess. It's in Korea. Com- coming up, um, Beijing. Oh no, in oh. Korea, the Winter Olympics. Yeah. Yeah, in Korea. Okay, so it I must believe. be the following yeah. winter is Be- Beijing one. Um, oh, they want to. Okay. Because really? it was, yeah, no one wanted it. It must have been 2000, whatever that's going to be, 2020. Be We're trying to do math again. Tw- Don't let journalists do We can't math. do math <laughs> on the, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Leave us with the word. Um, but that was, you know, the bidding process at that point was, uh, ended up being Beijing and one of the stands ended up left because mm-hmm. Oslo and a couple other countries uh, had referendums and the, and the, the, um, the people said no. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So they have to change, <laughs> I think they have to change some requirements. That's what's, yeah, that's what's going on. I think a lot of these mm-hmm. strict requirements by the IOC are being forced to change that a bit because less cities are, are wanting the Olympics, mm-hmm. certainly for winter. How many of these former cities that um, represented have you been to? 
We've gone to 16 so far. Wow. Yeah. How many do you hope to do? We're just going to keep doing it until we can't walk anymore. <laughs> so it's just it's a long-term, very long-term project. It started in 2008, and it just it, we're just going to keep doing them. Is there one city that stood out that either just recovered and beautifully or just made a total disaster out of it? Um, Sarajevo was one I wanted to do from the very beginning, just because of the, you know, the war element. The Bosnian War happened eight years after the Olympics, and it was devastating. Every venue was destroyed, just about, or affected uh, severely. And going there now, you look at the, something like the bobsleigh tracks uh, were used by fighters, and they were punching holes through the, the walls of the track oh, to, wow. as uh, fighting holes. Uh, <laughs> It's a profoundly sad place, but a, but a beautiful place, and the people were wonderful. And all the venues are being used, mm-hmm. <laughs> not for their, in their intended uses, but they're being used, you know, there's campers around the bobsleigh tracks. There was... Um, they're being used productively? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the citizens are using them, and they're proud of the Olympics. Yeah. Um, they're not using them, you know, the skateboarders and bicyclers. Oh, and, you know, it could be yeah. argued this That's not cool. productively, but... Yeah, no. They've kind of been folded into the fabric of the city. Somehow. Right, it's just a yeah. part of it. Mm-hmm. And and you can still see the rings in a lot of places. There's mm-hmm. still souvenirs for sale. <laughs> the rings are all around the city. And that's another thing I think is, is interesting uh, and, and a, a way to tell if, if a city still feels like an Olympic city mm-hmm. as you see this around town. A place like Torino, you couldn't find any evidence that it was there. Interesting. You know? There is so much pride. I mean, I was at the Olympics in Athens, and I guess it was 96. And I just remember being at the U.S. women's gold medal soccer game. And it's, you know, a, a college football stadium absolutely filled 80,000 people up to 100,000 people. And one side of the stadium is chanting U, and then the other side's chanting S, and then the other side chants A. <laughs> and, you know, it, we're cynical New Yorkers, and that can feel like it'd be contrived or cliche, but it's powerful it feels good when you're you're in it yeah yeah america love america (laughs) (laughs) i have no doubt that's happening in rio right now my best friend lives down there i was talking to her and she was saying how great it is but i was just saying i was in london which is notoriously filled with grumpy people Mm -hmm. and um, (laughs) you know during the two weeks that the olympics was on everybody was in such high spirits just like the social infrastructure they had volunteers all over the streets that were genuinely helping people with a smile that spoke all languages you know another thing that we haven't talked about is Olympic host cities during the two weeks have these great, you know, national houses that have these great parties every single night. And you kind of party hop from like the Dutch house to the Kiwi house to the German house. And it's so fun. And I know that's happening in Rio. Uh, It was great when it happened in London. And it just, it really ignites the city, regardless of what happens afterwards. Yeah. Did you get to do that? Did you party hop? Yeah. Well, all right. To the <laughs> Dutch house. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's fun. It's hard to get in. Um, but depending on the circumstances, they're open to the public and you can get certain tickets. I mean, it just you have to look into it, but it's, it's so fun. <laughs> okay, so in Rio right now, even the Olympic Village, it's not quite in Rio proper, right? It's a couple miles outside the city center, I think, or just the sprawl. What can you do if you're outside Rio? Paul, you did a huge package in book in the magazine about great trips to take if you're in Rio, but you want to stay in Brazil for a while. Yeah, I think one of the fascinating things to me about the Olympics is that they don't just 
put the spotlight on a city for a time, uh, you know, of course, in one way they do, you know, there's all this constant television coverage, there's all this media coverage of the place in that moment. But for years afterwards, you still hear about it or you talk about it. And, and as we've been saying, it, it depends on the destination, it depends on the city, it depends on sort of how well those Olympics go. But in some places, you know, the association with the Olympics stays, you know, almost permanently. Like I think of Montreal, like that's a place that to this day, you know, every time you ride the subway, you're sort of still paying for the Olympics that they had there. And so I think our idea with this story about, you know, don't go home after the Olympics is what we called it, is this idea that if you're going to fly to Brazil, you might as well turn it into a major vacation and you can do the Olympics or you can not do the Olympics. And there's all of these wonderful things happening in the country at this time that are worth seeing and worth going to. And if this is the event that gets your attention onto that country, then you should embrace it and head down to do these remarkable things. What kind of remarkable things? Oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so, I mean, the number one thing, right? I think the the, the thing that we led our, our package with was this idea that, oh yeah, the Amazon River is in Brazil. And, and there's these sort of amazing charter yachts that you can take. So instead of just sitting on the banks of the Amazon and watching it you know, slowly trickle by, you can go out on a charter yacht and explore and spend the nights on sandbars and swimming with pink dolphins and spending the night in true wilderness on a boat in the middle of the Amazon, which to me sounds like a pretty cool way to spend yeah, a few days. Yeah, that's not days. bad. That's not yeah. It's not cheap, no. but... Eh. Um, Worth it. Yeah, a few, few things are when it comes to <laughs> chartering yachts. But, um, you know, that was one of our ideas. And, you know, we talked about uh, the capital of Brazil, Brasilia, which is this sort of artificial city or, or planned city. I should say. It's not an artificial city. It's a real city, uh, <laughs> but a planned city with this sort of monumental architecture that is so stunning to so many people. Um, and it's very easy to kind of go there and explore and look at these kind of places that seems like something out of a science fiction movie. Well, wasn't all designed by Neymar. Exactly right. Well, most, most of it, many of the famous buildings. Mm-hmm. And, and the interesting thing about Brazil is, is you know, it's a huge country, much like the United States, but once you're there, it's very easy to kind of hop around. And there's this great airline that, that I think we've written about a lot on our site called Azul, mm-hmm. which was coincidentally founded by the, the guy that started JetBlue. And so it has a lot of the same things in common. It's a low-cost carrier with great service and it's uh, high frequency. And so, you know, I think if you look at the map of Brazil and you say, oh my God, this is a sort of imposing, enormous place that I'll never fully understand where everybody speaks Portuguese. It's not really that difficult if you do a little bit of pre-planning. And uh, there are people, too, I should say, that we mention in our article who are experts in travel to Brazil and, and kind of organize these things, uh, whether it's going to the capital, whether it's going to sleepy beach towns with just fabulous palm-backed strands of sand facing the Atlantic, doing sort of art excursions. Whatever it is that you're interested in, they probably have it in Brazil. And there are people who we have on our website, we call them travel specialists who can help put all this stuff together for you. And so uh, you can find them at cntraveler.com as well. Just search for Brazil travel specialists. How long would you plan to go to Brazil? Would you do like a, a seven day trip, a 10 day trip? Like me personally? Yeah. What would you do? I would do four weeks if I could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's a huge place. And I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff to do with national parks talked a little bit about the beach towns. There's sort of these archipelagos off the coast, really close to Rio, where you can go sailing. You're also very close to Buenos Aires and Uruguay, which are, uh, you know, remarkable destinations in their own right. Uh, Four hours from Rio, you can be in Santiago on the other side of the Andes and having a totally different experience in Chile. So I think it's, the idea is that if you spend, you know, the nine hours to get down there on on the long haul flight, you might as well spend a little time hopping around. And I think, you know, you could probably see a lot in a week. 
and it's that nine hour long haul flight, but it's also, what is Rio, a one hour time difference, I think, from the East Coast? Yeah, I think it depends on the time of year, but it's sort of this place that you can go that even though it's a very long flight, you don't really have jet lag because you're not changing time zones in right. the way you are to go to Europe or, or, you know, or to go to Asia or somewhere, you know, where you really kind of feel upside down once you're there. So it's what we always encourage people about, whether it's Brazil or any of the other countries in South America, it's like you can leave on a Friday evening and be there on a Saturday morning and spend an entire week with no jet lag. And I mean, that's kind of the dream, right? Yeah, that sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's appealing. No. And I want to go to the beaches. Are, Jordy, are you, you're on one beach right now. Do you think you're going to venture out? Do you have the right bathing suit? I mean, I'd be intimidating. I don't know. <laughs> I actually didn't bring a bathing suit. One, because of Zika, and two, because it's a little chilly. Yeah. Uh, but I'll probably go check out the beach regardless. I will just be fully clothed. <laughs> How Brazilian of you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if I have the confidence to walk around with the other ladies that are on the beach. <laughs> Um, Aaron, do you do you have any beach recommendations for the Rio area? I know there's a couple beach in city that are awesome, but yeah, sure. I mean, you know, you, all the other stuff we spoke about earlier. First and foremost, you go to Rio for the beach, right? So, uh, like I mentioned earlier, the Zona Sol is where there's the highest concentration of the commercial beaches, or at least the beaches you will have heard of. That's Copacabana, Ipanema, and Leblon. Um, and the thing is, they're they're actually just kind of one long beach. They're the same beach. They're one long beach. So uh, you can, you know, if you want to take a nice walk, you can start at Copa and keep walking and go through Ipanema and, and end up at Leblon. But what, you know, makes each of them distinct is they have these, like, you know, markers are these posts um, at the edge of the sand before the footpath starts. And so, you know, that's how you kind of know where you want to be. If you want to go to, you know, post 07 or post 08 or whatever, that's A, how you meet your friends. And also, you know, one thing I remember when I was down there, certain types of tribes or certain types of people tend to congregate at different uh, markers. So it's kind of funny. And please don't ask me to recall which tribe is at which marker because I I couldn't possibly. But there are are sort of these stereotypes of the types of people that you'll find at each spot along the beach. So there's, you know, those are the main commercial beaches in the center and they're absolutely worth going to. I mean, I think Ipanema and Leblon a little more than Copa just because Copa is so, it's more crowded. but then also where Barra, where Jordi is in Barra, that's another great, beautiful beach, a little more private, a little more for the locals. So you're not going to get the excess of tourists there. But um, if you really want to be ambitious, you know, you can take these great day trips to these beautiful, pristine, untouched spots where there's, you know, m- the crowds are far, far thinner. There's one in particular that I went to called Praia, I believe, and I apologize if I'm, I'm kind of mispronouncing the name, but that was, you know, an easy under an hour bus ride from the center of the city and the buses are pretty regular and it was gorgeous and you go and you sort of feel like you found this beautiful piece of you know white sand beach and it's a it's great surf and they've got a couple of shacky beach bars which are just perfect and exactly what you want and it's 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 great it's lovely i mean that sounds idyllic mm-hmm. and again jordy i'm jealous that you're there um maybe we're i think it's about time to wrap up so um i just want to know real quick Paul, what event are you going to watch during this year's Olympics? Maybe we start with Paul. Cheering for the women's soccer team this year. Yeah, as opposed to last time? No, always, <laughs> always. <laughs> Aaron, what do you think? Gymnastics. Mm-hmm. Are you a Gabby Douglas fan? Yeah. Yeah. No, wait, do you cheer? 
How many countries do you cheer for? Well, yeah, so that's the beauty of having like multiple passports and backgrounds. The second one country of mine drops out, I can just move on to another one just as legitimately. To be honest, it's like, I'll always go Team New Zealand because always the underdog, but um, you know, I'll support the USA, of course, as well. Sometimes Italy, not often. Grudgingly. (laughs) John, what about you? I embarrassingly know very little about the Olympics, but I'm curious to see what happens with Phelps. That's amazing that you've shot 16 cities. <laughs> right. And you know. <laughs> well, I blame Jaina because it was her. <laughs> it, I'm always sort of watching over her shoulder because she's, she's a huge fan of the Olympics. Jaina is John's lovely wife mm-hmm. who is a traveler alum. And mm-hmm. we miss her. We're yes. saying that on air. Yes, it's yes. recorded. Yes. Uh, Jordy, what about you? Well, I have to say, as much as I love gymnastics, my husband is a triathlete, so he actually got me really into triathlon. So I'm excited to see uh, the women's triathlon in particular. Gwen Jorgensen is the favorite to win. She's from the U.S., and she had a rough 2012 uh, debut, but she's the favorite to win, so I'm excited to see if she brings home gold. Nice. Nice. What what about you, Laura? Track and field and soccer. But uh, there's this athlete, uh, men's 5,000 meter racer who is uh, American and he's in his 40s and I think he's one of the oldest competing track athletes and he had this crazy come from behind victory in one of the trial runs. I mean, you gotta love that. Like yeah. th- those are the stories mm-hmm. you you know you watch these sports at like 6 a.m. whenever they're airing. I don't know, but we're really looking forward to a few weeks in Rio. Jordy, thank you for calling in from you know on location. Um, so this is Travelogue. We are on iTunes and SoundCloud, and you can find CN Traveler all over the web. We are on Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook. We also do a lot of Facebook Live. You can find Aaron and Paul on that pretty often. And uh, we are each on social as well. So let's go around real quick and say our favorite handle. Paul again. Sure, you can find me on Twitter at P underscore Brady. Jordy. You can find me on Instagram at, at WellTraveler. Aaron? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Aaron underscore Florio. John? Uh, you can find me at Instagram uh, at JNPCK. And I'm Laura underscore Redbin on Instagram. And that's it. So have a great weekend and go Team USA. <laughs> <laughs>